Hey everybody, welcome to the DC3 cast. This is uh, a spoilers heavy podcast. I always forget to say that, so I'm saying that right up top this week. Uh, if you haven't read the DC comics that came out on June 21st, 2017, pause the podcast, read your comics, and then come back. We'd, we'll wait for you here. We'll uh, we'll be, you know, waiting patiently by the door like a, like a loyal puppy waiting for you to come back to your favorite podcast. I presume this is your favorite podcast because I mean, I'm loopy tonight. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Anyway, with me as always is Vince. I'm Brian. Our special guest this week calling in from the great state of Maryland is our friend, Robots from Tomorrow, co-host and Multiversity staffer, Greg Matasevich. Hello, Greg. Hi. How's everything by you? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. I'm ready to talk some DC Comics. Well, let's get right to it then. So the biggest news of the past week or so is that starting uh, in September, Wonder Woman's new creative team is going to be anchored by James Robinson, as well as artist Carlo Pagulion and uh, Emanuela Lubacchino on a six-month Wonder Woman arc that will begin, uh, as I said, in September. So... I, I think I'm pretty much on record as being a huge James Robinson fanboy, so that, that, that's not anything new. But I'm interested yeah. to hear what you guys think of this. Uh, Greg, you're our guest. What do you think of this lineup? Um, <laughs> uh, I th- um, I'm, I'm chuckling because, obviously, this news came out a couple of days ago, and we've had a couple of days to sort of sift through the internet reaction to this, which is, shall we say, mixed. Uh, I think it's being pretty charitable. Um, I would, okay, to answer your question, um, I am okay with it. Uh, I would much rather have, obviously, you know, Greg Rucka and company stay on. That is not an option. Uh, I, I am also uh, on record as being a Robinson fan, both, I think, maybe on the show, but also, uh, on robots, uh, the the tagline for what his story is going to be doesn't necessarily fill me with a ton of confidence. Um, I guess it's basically like, hey, Diana finds out that she has a brother that has disappeared and is like reappearing. So that's not necessarily the road I would go down. But I feel like Robinson... <laughs> I don't. I, I don't want to say this. I think Robinson has the sensitivity to be able to make something out of that in a way that will be in line with the sensitivity that Rucka has shown with the character. I think he's got he's got the chops to do that, and he has the track record to be able to do that. Um, he also. <laughs> It's a road. It's a bumpy road. There is, and there are some, there are a couple of really big bumps in that road that people will point to and say he should not do this. Uh, he is not my first choice, but I think of the choices, I think he is not as bad as <laughs> I, it. It's weird, but I, I think it's, I think it can be. Okay, it's not an immediate dumpster fire. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, does that does that come close to answering anything? 
Sure. Okay. Vince, what do you think about this? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, oh, it's complicated. Okay. We, we kind of had a little discussion about this on Twitter, and um, we all know about the Airboy thing. There, there was a, 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 a transphobic scene in there that was meant to um, portray what assholes these guys were, right, mm-hmm. at, a, at a certain time. And um, I, the thing that I'll say for him is that he handled it – he handled the blowback – better than 99% of creators when they get blowback such as that. A lot of people get defensive. A lot of people sort of brush off the criticism without a, without another thought or, or fight back. And, and he was very apologetic, and I believe he donated to some cause, and I think he he admitted, like, look, okay, I, I fucked up, you know. So, um, so I'll give him that. Um, so somebody who's dealt with that sort of subject matter in the past to some degree I feel should have known better from the start but but I'm not going to like I'm not one to say he should never work in comics again that's not me you know I don't think that's fair you know especially with the contrition that he showed but I mean really like I I I don't think you blacklist somebody for that, um, for trying to be controversial, you know, whatever. But when it comes to Wonder Woman, I, I'm not certain. <laughs> like Greg said, he's not my first choice, and I think, well, I well, I want to see him in comics. I, I, something just rubs me the wrong way about. Wonder Woman in this case especially when it's focusing when the focus is not going to be I mean I'm sure Wonder Woman will play a big role in this but the focus of the arc or whatever seems to be about her brother Jason right so it's just a weird it's a weird thing to do coming off the back of a very successful movie a very empowering movie for a lot of people um, and <laughs> and I just think, like, you know, can't we we can get Robinson back at DC on something? Can't we get a woman on Wonder Woman for for once? You know, like, and I hate I I don't want to sound like, you know. I mean, what well, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I it's funny. The other day, I was I was searching for something. Uh, on Twitter, I was trying to find something I had I had retweeted like a year ago, and I was looking at a bunch of tweets from like early May of last year. And Vince, we talked a lot of shit about stuff we had no idea what we were talking about. Like it was a rebirth, <laughs> right? We had a lot of very strong opinions about what was going to be good in rebirth, what wasn't going to be good in rebirth, and all that. And we we were we were right a lot of the time, but it sort of reminded me that certain things we were so convinced were going to be good or bad turned out to be just the total opposite because you don't know until you read it, right? And I feel like that's an important thing to say about the the storyline that Robinson is writing because it does not sound like what I want to read from a Wonder Woman story. But I also thought Tom King's Batman was going to be dope. So, like, you know, I, I, I'm trying to, to, to remember that the creator has a whole lot to do with this and that the story could surprise me 
yada yada. That's my first caveat. Sure. My second caveat. I agree with you, Vince, when you say that somebody shouldn't be blackballed for fucking up and taking on the chin. I mean, Brian fucking Wood is still writing comics, and <laughs> that's like, yeah. <laughs> and he did not. And he he didn't write a shitty scene. Like he sexually assaulted people and didn't really ever eat crow over that. And he's still writing comics. So like you know, I agree. And I also think that you know, one of the things that somebody said to me one time when I was. Uh, when I was in college, I was I was working at the radio station, and there was some band that said something shitty, and I wanted to like, I wanted to make a decree we shouldn't play that band anymore. And one of my coworkers was like, "Well, haven't you said shitty shit?" I'm like, "Of course I have, but I'm not in a band." And he's like, "Why does that matter? If you should be, if you shouldn't be judged on your worst moment, then neither should they." And that's kind of always stuck with me. And I, I don't, I know it's a really easy cop out answer here, but I feel like we've all said shitty things. And we've all done shitty things, and we've been given second chances for them. And I think that Robinson deserves a second chance, especially because, as you said, he took it on the chin like a big boy, and because he's generally shown in the past a sensitivity, like Greg mentioned, towards not just any one group of people or or whatever. He's he's shown to be a pretty sensitive writer for lots of different things. You know, he is. Uh, you know, people on Twitter were shitting on him that he was a Glad Award nominee. But people forget that before same-sex couples were regular in comics, he had them multiple times. You know, mm-hmm. he was—he really was on the forefront of a lot of stuff. That doesn't excuse anything, but, you know, no. he deserves a second chance. So all of that aside, I think that the idea of Robinson writing Wonder Woman is incredibly poetic for DC because it's, it's tantamount to Rucka writing Wonder Woman again. It's these people who said, I'm never working for DC again coming back and working on a huge character. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me. I, and I think it's maybe worth a discussion of why – do you think there's something about the character that uh, that sets itself up for this? Um, maybe – I think maybe there are a couple of things. Uh, one, the character is in the spotlight more than ever because of the movie. Uh, the character also is has basically one main main book, and that book is in flux. So it's sort of an open. It, it's like the open chair of the of the Trinity, you know. Um, so that probably plays into it uh, a bit. Um, yeah, that's all I've got so far. <laughs> you know. Well, I think, yeah, I think, I think, Greg, you're, you're right. And you've talked to Rucka uh, more recently than this interview that I'm going to cite, but Mm -hmm. he he did say in an interview towards the start of Rebirth that uh, they, you know, they asked him about coming back to DC and he said, it's Diana, (laughs) you know, know? so there is, there is truth to that. Um, And I think, you know, I'm sure I'm sure it's not just Diana. Like I'm sure it was it was how he was treated. You know, he wasn't going to be treated like shit and then write her. You know, right. But um, but I think um, I think that is huge. And I think um, I think reading between the lines, not only is it offering a huge character to these creators, mm-hmm. but also kind of saying we are going to let you tell the story the way you want to tell it because I 
I really got that feeling for, from Rucka anyway. I don't know. I don't know how Robinson was approached, but I got mm-hmm. the feeling that you know, they told him, "Look, this is rebirth. You, you get Diana to a new status quo the way that you want her to, and you get to do the origin over again, essentially." And I, I think that's huge. And so if they said anything remotely similar to Robinson as far as like, oh, you do you want to tell the story of Diana's long-lost brother? You tell it the way that you want to tell it. You know, I, I imagine that that was a big draw for him without actually knowing whether that's how it went down or not. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would have been different if Robinson were coming back on a different character? Like, Robinson coming back to D.C. feels like a big thing. Agreed, yeah. And that feels like it's overshadowed by the fact that he's coming back to Wonder Woman and everyone is going, Wonder Woman is great, and here's the guy who the last thing we really paid attention to him on was him making transphobic comment. Like, that that clash is sort of what's overshadowing the fact that, you know, uh, Robinson coming back to D.C. feels like, you know, like you said, sort of like Rucka coming back to D.C. Rucka coming back to D.C. through Wonder Woman, because Wonder Woman was one of the books that he was most associated with at D.C. That felt like there was an inherent story there. With Robinson, it's like, it's not, not like he's coming back for Starman. He's not coming back for JSA or... Those are pretty much his big D.C. But he's coming back yeah. on even a main Superman. character... But, like, if he were coming back and doing Superman, or if he were coming back and doing, if he were coming back and doing, you know, a Justice Society relaunch, do you think there would be any type of, do you think any, do you think the, uh, the backlash of that transphobic comment would be as loud as it is now? No, I, I, I actually was going to talk about this in a minute. I feel like this is a really weird circumstance where everybody's happy that Wonder Woman is getting a high-quality writer. Everybody is happy that James Robinson is back at DC. Nobody is happy that the high-quality writer on Wonder Woman is James Robinson. <laughs> like it's, it's a really yeah. weird situation. And again, this could all shake it. If that first issue is fucking amazing, no one's going to remember this conversation right now. Like, Dude. we're going we're gonna to oh. say, you know, that's a good thing and fine. But up until then... It's it's like the it's they did something they did two things that independently are good for PR that yeah. together are bad for PR uh, as only you, DC can do yeah <laughs> <laughs> that that is that is a superpower uh, do you think uh, Peggy Lyon and Lupacino can execute an issue good enough to be as breakthrough as it needs to be for Robinson to get the uh, to get the absolution. I mean, Pagalion did some amazing stuff in Deathstroke this year. Yeah. And Lupacino can do really – I mean, I, I loved her uh, Supergirl uh, rebirth issue, and I think she's great. I, I think it all depends what type of story Robinson is telling, and it's okay. too early for us to really know that. It's no – it is not Liam Sharp and uh, Nicola Nick- Scott. Yeah. You know, it's not that combination. But again, it's kind of interesting that it's, again, a male writer with a male and female uh, creative team. Yeah, that's that is. I don't think it's necessarily good. One of Vince's points, like I, I just I don't see why DC has like a handful of women who seem like they'd be perfect 
for writing Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And DC is at a point where they're trying to re- bring back the JSA. So it just seems to me like even if this meant Robinson wouldn't get a book till January, like you hold that you hold that off. Everybody wants to see the JSA. Everybody wants to see Robinson writing the GS JSA. You wait for that to be the moment. That moment won't be as impactful if he's been on Wonder Woman for four months at that point. Do you think that maybe Wonder Woman's brother will tie into the JSA? Like this is how they now that's interesting. Like, you know, he disappeared. Where did he go? Maybe he went to Earth 2 and became, like, the Earth 2 Fury, only he's a guy, and now it's, like, JSA. Like, this is sort of the stealth, hey, here's Robinson. Oh, he's not doing a JSA book until the end of this arc, and it's like, you know, it ends to coming soon, Justice Society by Robinson. You know, oh, like, what if that were the thing? And then we'd have been like, oh, clever. Like, how the button is... You know, oh, it's Watchmen, it's Watchmen, it's Watchmen. No, it's Jay Garrick. And you're like, oh, <gasps> right. <laughs> like, that's that's certainly intriguing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you think DC is? I don't want to say subtle enough. Th- th- this was the question I was going to ask Rucka, but I didn't get a chance to because we sort of ran out of time. D- d- do you think DC has the uh, the sureness of uh, not sureness of subtlety but do you think DZ can lay off enough to be able to execute that as subtly as it would need to or do you think they're like sort of ooh shiny type of uh, uh, sort of race to to get the, the, the short game might sort of short circuit maybe going for a longer game if there's even a question in there Vince, I know this is, I know this is something you guys have talked about sort of at length between the three of you guys. Uh, but Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think you know Hopefully. you know what I you know what I think the response would be? I mean I I I think I wouldn't mind it, but the I think the response would probably be like, Well, why didn't you just start him there? We didn't need him writing Wonder Woman for a you know. But but your idea certainly intrigues me. <laughs> and don't you agree, though, that Vince, that if it's if his Wonder Woman run is really good, a lot of this will be forgotten about? Um, by some. <laughs> by some. <laughs> uh, one last little thing on this, because I know we've got other stuff to, to get to. Um, I think a lot of the things that makes Robinson's work work is the not necessarily attention to details but the sort of the granular little characterizations that Mm -hmm. he throws in um do you think do you think if he brings like the old robin not the old robinson but like the good robinson let's say (laughs) uh, to wonder woman do you think people will be able to recognize it and be like oh this is good as opposed to like, because he's not the type of writer that really has a big sort of flash to him. Like in his best work, it's more it's more of a grounded, I don't want to say off center, but like a granular type of thing, which seems like it, he okay. He feels like a very slow burn writer, and considering the amount of eyes and heat sort of on him for this, it feels like he's going to have to hit it out of the park in that first issue or. The, it or he's not really sort of going 
going to change the narrative on it. Do you think he can, do you think he can do that? I don't know. I mean, I don't necessarily think of Rucka as a first issue darling either. And that's no offense to Rucka or Robinson. Right. What I like about both those guys is that I, I like their work when taken in large chunks because they set up like Rucka is a master of setting something up in issue one, not paying it off to issue nine and then mm -hmm. really paying it off in issue 27. Like that's what Rucka does so well. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, including Zach, was really not a fan of that first couple of Liam Sharp Wonder Woman issues. Like he liked the year one stuff. He didn't like the lies part that much at all but eventually it really sold him so i don't know to me this isn't like this isn't robinson robinson and rucka are on a very level playing field i think for for a lot of us that they're they're, they're sort of in the upper echelon of of comic writers this isn't like he's coming in after a superstar that is the hottest person right now does that make sense like there's there's a, there's a certain um there's a certain like there's a certain consistency between rucka and robinson and i think that if robinson is smart he will he will try to keep a similar tone to what rucka has set i don't know i don't know if i'm answering your question or not but no I think that's good. Vince? Anything? Yeah. Um, I don't think I have anything to add. I think I think Brian's answer was good. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't think I <laughs> It'll be interesting. Just take the compliment. It will be. It'll be interesting. Um, just one other little thing, just like super, super, super great. Um, is his run going to be six issues or six months? Six months. And is it still going to be double shipping? Yes. So we're talking 12 issues? Yeah. Okay. Personally, yeah. I'm actually super thrilled that DC announces that sort of stuff now. Like, I yeah. love the idea that it's a 12 issue run. We know that going in. Okay. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I actually think that uh, they have a very big plan for Wonder Woman that's not ready yet. And so this was slotted in to get them ready. Yeah, because we, we, we kind of knew that this was... They had been talking about this uh, Wonder Woman's brother stuff for a while. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Like, he, he showed up at the end of the Dark Side of War, pre-Rebirth, mm -hmm. pre you know? Ah. Uh, so, and that's, that's actually why I think it's weird that Robinson is writing this character, too. Because I feel like Dark Side of War is such a Jeff Johns, like, popcorn event. Yeah. And that's just not Robinson's style. But, again, it's going to be interesting. Um, yeah, I I do hope this is the beginning of Robinson's full integration back into DC. And yeah. if that's the case, they just need Mark Wade back. Just get Mark <laughs> Wade back. Bring the whole band back together. Come on. Yep. Oh, uh, that would be that would be a day. They announced that that would that would be that would be a day. Here, yeah. Here's my dream, boys. Right. Uh -huh. like oh boy. Uh, four to six months from now at New York Comic Con, so I can be in the room when it's announced. I love the <laughs> all right. They're going to say, like, all right, starting in you know, June of next year at the two year point of rebirth, we're going to have two flash books, one by Josh Williamson, one by Mark Wade. We're going to have two Wonder Woman books, one by Greg Rucka, one by Marguerite Bennett, and we're going to have a JSA book by James Robinson. And then wow. all is right with the world. I. That's 
That's good. I <laughs> um, my tweak on that would be I don't know if I would have Wade writing Flash again. Um, I would have tweaked that to say uh, Wade is writing action comics. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm on board. Cool. Okay. Yeah. He, he's right. he's dethroning Jurgens. I'm cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a pity Action Comics didn't come out this week. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it's not Jergens? a pity for you guys, but you know. Uh, but we did get a Batman, so that'll be. That'll we did get a Batman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, speaking of of Batman, I want to talk quickly about. So there's going to be, um, a bunch of DC. Uh, Batman-related one-shots that tie into this metal event that are starting in September. And there's going to be, I believe it's uh, seven one-shots and then a sort of mini-crossover. Just real quickly, uh, Batman the Red Death by Josh Williamson and Carmine D.G. Domenico. Batman the Murder Machine by Frank Thierry and Ricardo Federici. Batman the Dawnbreaker by Sam Humphreys and Ethan Van Skyver. Batman the Drowned by Dan Abnett and Philip Tan. Batman the Merciless by Peter Tomasi and Francis Manipal. And Batman the Devastator and Batman the and the Batman Who Laughs do not have uh, creative teams attached to them. So just by looking at this list, there's a bunch of creators who are working together or who are from the same sort of line of books. Like Williamson and DJ Domenico are doing The Flash. Um, Dan Abnett and Philip Tan both have done Wonder Woman stuff. Uh, Batman the Merciless is seeming like a Superman-ish thing by Tomasi and Manipal. Uh, you know... Humphreys and... and yeah, uh, Humphreys and Van Skyver are both in the Green Lantern uh, books right now. Yeah. You know, the, uh, we know so little about these that it's very hard to make any sort of real critical judgment for it. But what do you guys think of these, like, uh, these alt-universe Batman... <laughs> kind of deal in in DC tropes. What's Vince, what's what's your like gut reaction to this? My gut reaction is seven evil Batman seems like the worst of DC's impulses all coming together. <laughs> like does that not sound like it does. You know. Um but the creative teams are are pretty strong, you know. With a couple exceptions, I Frank think. Thierry. Well, we're hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, but you know, so and and I think I think there is the potential for something like this to be a fun Halloween thing. The pr- the problem is is that uh, whenever I imagine DC trying something fun like this, it usually ends up more like the Hanna Barbera crossovers, where like. A couple of them are fun, and the rest are a total waste of time. Yeah. And so I, I, I imagine it's probably going to turn out like that, if I'm being honest. But um, uh, <laughs> but I'm open to, you know, I'm open to it. That's fine. You're hey, bat curious. Here, I'm bat curious. <laughs> can I, can I tell you something else I'm curious about? Sure. Do you think we might get Brubaker back for the Batman Who Laughs? Oh, dude, don't do this to me. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, that's If there's no creative team announced, that's the first thing I thought of, you know? Wow. He's He came back for the Convergence stuff, right? Didn't, what? Didn't he, no, no, sorry, that was Rucka, too. No, yeah. Rucka came back for Convergence, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, if you can get Rucka back, if you can get Robinson back, you can get Brubaker back. 
Maybe. <laughs> for, like, for like one issue? I'm, I'm not feeling it. No? Uh, no, because with Robinson and Rucka, there's a direct Jeff Johns connection, which I don't feel mm-hmm. there is for Brubaker. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Rucka and Johns were 52, and then Robinson and Johns were, like, you know, the whole mentor. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then they were know, doing the... Secrets thing, yeah. And the new Krypton stuff together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I, but I but I feel like and Greg you would know better than I, I feel like Rucka and Robinson's departures from DC were both more bitter than Brubaker's. Mm-hmm. Is that is that right? Uh, as far as I can tell, yeah, it was much more sort of acrimonious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, so I feel like there's a chance. Oh, but I also feel like I also feel like Rucka and Robinson were still doing stuff that was akin to what they were doing at DC, whereas yeah. Brubaker has pretty much sworn off superhero comics. So that's a little bit different. You're right. You're right. But I think that'd be very cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, Greg, what do you think of this general idea? Um, the the evil Bat League. Uh, <laughs> not like... Uh, it really sort of does nothing for me. Um, it feels very... So this bat metal, this isn't tying into in any way the whatever the metal line was from dark metal or whatever from a month or two months ago. So this this metal crossover is, I believe, like the bridge. It's the Snyder Capullo uh, miniseries that is sort of the bridge between DC proper and this dark matter line. Dark matter. Okay, the it. I I agree with Vince that it feels like it's it's tapping into all of the I don't say the worst, but the the lowest common denominator impulses of DC. Like DC is. It, Let's just say it. This feels like a new Fifty Two thing. It feels like DC is doing dude bro comics. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like that. Whenever I, whenever I think of like Zack Snyder or this sort of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you see like Batman fucking punching Superman? That'd be fucking awesome. Like the the type of person, okay, the type of person who would, <laughs> the type of person who would love to see Batman knocking out Rorschach or Rorschach punching Batman like on panel, like as an incontinuity thing. That sort of dude bro mentality is the only way I could put it. And I'm apologizing if I'm insulting dude bros, but like it, it's that crow comic book crow magnon sort of idea that I'm just like, God, no, no man. Just, just no. And that is the, it's like, that's the shiny button or the shiny object or whatever <laughs> that, that it feels like, and I don't want to necessarily say to Dio, but like, that's the thing he can't lay off of. You know, so yeah. the like bat metal, and it's like it's seven evil Batmen from another. I was like, really? So, like the individual, an indiv- individual creators can make a good comic. Like anybody can make a good comic. There can be a good comic in anything. I am not psyched about the line, and so it won't be till after it where somebody comes and says, "Hey, this one issue was really good," and then I'll check it out. That's why we exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh. So I, I I agree with both you guys on a lot of this. What I will say is this though, and I don't know, Greg, how how close you've been following this whole uh, metal thing. So did you read the, the issue last week, the Dark Days, the Forge? 
Uh, I kind of skimmed through it. I meant to go back, but I haven't yet. Okay. So, so that that's sort of like the precursor to all of this. And one of the things that Snyder has talked about, and I have formally invited him on the show via DC in July. So hopefully he comes back and uh, talks to us about all this. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he's talked about is how there is this, you know, there there's the 52 multi multiverse that we're, that we've seen through DC comics, but how there's this like, there's this other multiverse in the dark matter of the universe. And that's what all this sort of, they call it the dark multiverse, which is the dumbest possible name for it. But I, I, right. I understand. Well, this it. is the company that came up with anti-monitor. So that, like, that is, that is very, very true. You know, it's the placeholder that, that you don't get rid of because it sticks. And then you're like, Oh fuck, we're stuck with this. Exactly. So, <laughs> we're stuck with the dark multiverse. Yeah, um, that's right. But like, but the idea of, of exploring like an unexplored part of the universe is a lot of fun for me, mm-hmm. but doing it through evil Batman is the least fun way you can do it. So right. Batman. Batman. Yeah. Uh, so I I'm, I'm with you guys. I, I think that there's potential for this to be good. There's also potential for this to be bad. What I like though, about the way DC is doing stuff is I feel like a four or five years ago, everything would stop for this idea. This would be villains month. Like this would be, mm a month of comics would stop and every comic would be evil Batman for a month. And I'm just so glad we're past that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we can just ignore these one shots if we choose to. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Uh, last bit of news before we get into the books this week. Uh, it was announced this week that in September, Scott Snyder's all-star Batman will wrap up its current uh, iteration and that, uh, Snyder mentioned that there's going to be a big announcement soon, and we can presume that anything said in the next month with the word soon attached to it means at San Diego Comic-Con um, <laughs> about there being a sort of a new initiative with DC that is about prestige format books and giving the artists more credit and get, letting them have more freedom, rather, uh, in what they're doing. So we don't have any details about this, but I, I know that the three of us have all at various points talked about liking a prestige format mm-hmm. as something that's a little bit different. I know Greg especially is a format guy. So <laughs> this is, you know, this is exciting for him. Uh-huh. Uh, but like, what do you, what do you guys think realistically this is going to look like? Do you think it's going to be just certain creators given like, you know, it, it's always been interesting to me that Snyder took all-star Batman as the name was all-star has a, a history at DC, right? And it mm-hmm. has, it has a sort of pedigree of being like the top creators on the top characters doing their own thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if we just see the all-star line become its own thing. And we see the people like Snyder, like Grant Morrison, like Jeff Johns, like Greg Rucka come on and, and not do out of continuity work, but just do work that isn't dependent on the continuity. Oh man, that 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 would already sweeten like what has been (laughs) such a dominant year for DC. Um, when they say format, did they like? How did they? Because I didn't read the the actual announcement stuff. How did they preface that? Like, I I will read you exactly what Snyder said. Okay. Uh. They're creating bold new initiatives, new lanes to drive in creatively, 
for creators to tell the kind of stories like I was telling on All Star. They are artist centric and a little bit left to center in a ways that put the artist for artist first with a new artist format and a new level of sophistication in terms of allowing for content. That's a bit more adult, I guess. Artist format. So that may not necessarily be a difference in publishing format, but it might be a a difference in like the way the artist is showcased, the way the artist is is uh, touted or publicized. Right. Maybe format. Ah. You know, uh, lowercase f as opposed to capital F or capital P prestige format. Like we're not getting, you know, square bound books. See, I think we are. Hmm. Here's why I think this, and I've been thinking a lot about this. Okay. We've seen DC attempt a number of things like this. I think Jeff Johns just last month was like, oh yeah, Earth-1 Batman is still a thing. Like, when was the last time anybody thought about one of the Earth-1 like graphic novels? We don't think about it at all, right? Right. Not even when they were coming out. Exactly. Did we think about it? But but I I feel like DC is is starting to wise up to certain things that have been missing in their line for a long time and like All Star Batman is the only monthly book that is published with a cardstock cover. Hmm. And I I feel like they're they're just going to be leaning more into that sort of a thing. We're letting this feel really important and letting this feel just giving the creators more leeway to tell their own stories. And again, not to do that outside of continuity, but just to do that in a way that feels more, uh, more creator driven. Do you, hmm, I could get on board with that. Do you feel like DC is trying, DC of 2017 is trying to be DC of 1987? in the way that they're trying to be more creatively open for people like, you know, Miller coming over and doing, you know, be it Ronin or, or then going on to like Batman. And basically like Marvel is entrenched in being this, you know, like the Marvel universe and DC is like, Hey, we get to be creator friendly. You guys come over here and we will let you, we'll let you play more. You know, do you feel like they're, sort of recognizing that 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 like the landscape is where that can be sort of a historical precedent they look at and be like oh you know what that kind of worked let's try that again Vince what do you think maybe is it, that too much credit well it's cer- it certainly feels like a lesser version of that i i just i think with the way that um corporate synergy is these days I, I don't know if you're going to see DC go like full give the keys to somebody like Miller again and right and let him run wild but there are certainly pockets of that you know like like young young animal I'm <clears> sure <throat> I'm sure uh Gerard Way has limits on who he can use but there is a there's a book set in the Batman universe now you don't see Batman for more than like a page in, in you know a couple of those issues or Batwoman you know there's limits to what they can do I think um, but but there's room for, there's room for a little bit of what you're talking about I think um, yeah for sure yeah see I think that can come down to like an individual individual editors 
sure. sort of like what they're what they're sort of able to allow and what they're willing to allow. And I think if you can have these editors set up these little pockets, you know, because it's the editor is the one who sort of puts the teams together and sort of makes the contacts and and everything. And so if you get a bunch of these editors who say, look, you know, for my books, I'm going to I want them to be, you know, I don't necessarily have to toe a certain line. They just need to be, you know, they just need to make a certain sell a certain number of copies or, or whatever. Then I'm going to, you know, open it up to you know, to having different type of people come in and have a little more, you know, play with it. Uh, and I guess that feel, it, it it feels like DC is, whether intentionally or sort of by osmosis of people saying, oh man, I want this, I want to feel like this type of book and those type of books were coming out in that immediate sort of post-crisis 87, 88, 89 type of structured Wild West type of weird you know, sort of synergy. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's really exciting because you can get, you you can, you can get these surprise books um, and these surprise, you know, combinations. And not every book has to be, you know, Dark Knight or not every book has to be, you know, Justice League International or, or whatever, but you can't write off everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I like being surprised and, and I don't like hearing no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like hearing, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. You know. What I think is really interesting, Greg, is that that last period of sort of, like, like you mentioned, like, you know, this is overselling it, but creative utopia, right, where everything was possible, mm-hmm. came right after they decided to nix the multiverse. Right. And, like, now they're bringing back so many of those elements along with the creative freedom. Yeah. It's exciting. It is exciting. Um, I think DC right now has been taking a lot of chances that have almost all paid off. For the last year, almost every big thing DC has tried has gone well. Eventually, one of those things is not going to go well. And to me, that's the biggest test is how they recover from that first, like, you know, banana peel. Do you think they've built up enough small wins to be able to buttress themselves if one of those huge ones goes, you know, splat? I think it depends which huge one. Like, to to me, the big thing is if they, like, you know, did you read all all of the bulletin? I did. Like, wasn't that way better than any business being? Yes. (laughs) So, like, that's crazy, right? But they can't, if every Watchmen story is like if this doomsday clock story is not as dumb as it sounds and they don't totally (laughs) fall on their face, that's great. What I'm afraid of is when something that big completely fails. Hmm. Yeah. It it also depends what it, it also depends what it fails against. Like, I don't think if, if doomsday clock failed against civil war two, I don't know if that's in, if that's something that DC would really even have felt that much. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. I feel like the, unless Marvel or Image or somebody is offering like something truly different and great at the same time, DC could take a little bit of a hit and not lose all that much, either market share or buzz or insert import, important word here. Mm-hmm. 
you know. Uh, I I know we need to get to the get to the books, but there, but you did touch on something that I wanted to, to ask you guys about. Um, it feels like we're we're you know the comic industry feels like it's a sort of a two party or, or or a binary type of thing, <laughs> you know, between DC and Marvel, one company's good, one company is ascendant, and the other company is is having problems, right? Not firing on all cylinders, let let's say. Um, and it feels like in the last, you know, year, at least couple, maybe a couple of years, but certainly, you know, put, since Rebirth, DC has, you know, the brakes have been falling DC's way where they haven't, where they haven't been with Marvel. And do you think, do you think, do you think that's true? Do you think, uh, DC, do you think there would ever be a time when both of them were sort of, uh, ascended at the same time, do you think, or do you think part? Let me let me pull that back. That wasn't really a question. Do Do you think um, part of DC's part of the the reason that DC feels like it's more inviting is be, is because Marvel feels like they can't get their act together, even though they're putting out good books. There's just sort of a yeah. I don't even know if there's a question in there. I just, <laughs> no, I, just... I, I I totally know what you mean. Right. Um, Vince, do you have a strong opinion about this? Well, I think I think one of the one of the major factors is that, um, for lack of a better word, there Marvel and DC are very um, incestuous or like. Uh, uh, mm, wife swappy <laughs> in that okay. in that um right it seems like writers it's like a battle for writers and artists to go back and forth between uh these two companies and mm-hmm. every so often uh every so often one of them will peel off and go do image stuff and and just image stuff like like uh well or other side projects like uh, Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue and Brubaker, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but other than that, you you don't see, and maybe it's always been this way, but I feel like because of the internet, there's so much more focus or like news about who's becoming exclusive at either company, and um, you, you you don't see somebody writing books at both. Uh, places anymore you know mm-hmm. um, and I feel like because of that there's kind of a wave that happens where like Marvel when Marvel had the architects Marvel was probably where everybody wanted to write you know mm-hmm. especially while DC was having all sorts of editorial turmoil all of a sudden at DC they're doing things that people are interested in stealing some talent away from Marvel here and there. And all of a sudden you're seeing guys like Robinson apparently want to come back and play in this world again. So I feel like it, there's waves of influence that happen. Like all of a sudden DC is the cool place to write right now. If you're talking mainstream comics and so people are drifting over there and I'm sure Marvel will get it back, but you know, might be a year, might be a a few years. I mean, DC was kind of 
excuse me, hiccups. Uh, DC was kind of in the in the doghouse for the better part of five years, so who knows how long it could take. But you know, the the waves they happen. So, right? Yeah, I um. This is tough. Part of me feels like we as fans make this out to be a way bigger thing than it really is. <laughs> and like, you know, I'm trying to think there are a few writers now. I mean, like as of September, I think unless Robinson's Marvel contract is up, he's going to be writing for both companies. Uh, right. Greg Pak was writing for both companies uh, for a while there. Uh, a few other folks have as well, but usually it's not the top tier guys, right? Those top tier guys tend to be exclusive one way or the other. Um, I do think it helps the narrative when one is clearly ascending and one is clearly descending. But I think that there, like, looking back on it now, yes, the architects were a big deal at Marvel for the time. But I don't know if DC was necessarily all that bad when that first started. That started right around the time of Flashpoint. And now we're so nostalgic for pre-Flashpoint stuff that doesn't seem like as big of a deal. So I think I think part of it feels like a bigger deal in the moment than it does overall. And when we look back on it, it might be easier to say, well, we were shitting on DC at that time, but they really had this, this and this going on. Um, but I think that right now, what's very interesting is that Marvel is killing it cinematically. And until yeah. Wonder Woman, DC hadn't done a damn thing with their <laughs> with their films. And I think that in so and I've said this on the podcast before, I think, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, that DC publishes books the way Marvel should if Marvel's trying to replicate their movie line. And Marvel publishes books the way DC should if DC's trying to replicate their movie line. What I mean by that by that is like Captain America on screen. Is the is the closest to like the perfect distillation of who Captain America should be, right? And so the Marvel books, if they wanted to capitalize on the type of things that make their movie successful, would publish the equivalent of Superman Rebirth with Captain America in it. But they're not doing that. Cap's a Nazi, which <laughs> kind of falls in line with how Superman acts in the DC extended universe. So, like you know, it's just it's it's interesting. Um, Short answer: like, I don't think it's necessary, but I think it, it does help when there's when there's a goat in every situation. Yeah, uh, it it's like you can't have both companies doing the same thing well at the same time, right? When you're talking about like the movies, you know, Marvel movies, great. DC TV is great. Right, and then the comics, I guess, are sort of half and half. But the, the the thing, and then going into the going into the comics, which I, I swear to God, I will let you guys talk about. You know, or we can <laughs> talk about is that going into these, I feel like I want to, I I feel like I want to read DC comics more than Marvel, even though if I look at the number of titles, I'm probably reading about the same for each. But like the company attitude or the company feel, it feels like Marvel has been was so like dominant for so long they got really arrogant and then they and then they sort of it kind of feels like they've lost their way with a whole bunch of things that they've said the last year and the, and then the you know the crossovers 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 at DC feels like well you know we took we've been taking it on the chin but we basically have recentered ourselves and now we're you know reborn or rebuilding and this is we've allowed ourselves to basically just make good books again because that's sort of what we had to fall back to and they're like look you know this book is really good 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 so i get 
the DC books that I'm reading and then going into this week having to read all these DC books, uh, it felt like, oh, I get to sort of check in with DC as opposed to like with the Marvel stuff. I'm more like, oh, God, why do I have to like <laughs> sort of dig into how what everyone's doing for Secret Empire? You know, right. and I tend to like the books that tend to be their own thing, you know, yeah. um, so so just uh, in terms of feel right now, I'm feeling D.C. generally sort of more than Marvel. So that's sort of where I am as I started to read, you know, this massive amount of books this week. So well, anyway, uh, we're, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be back in just a second with those books. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at the Eisner-nominated MultiversityComics.com. Every week we take about 15 minutes to check out books hitting the shelves on Wednesday that we're most looking forward to. We also have long-form discussions about books we're excited for, both old and new. These episodes have included works like Jaime Hernandez's Love Bunglers and Katsuhiro Otomo's epic Akira. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the people we've had on the show have been Tom Scioli, Paul Pope, Leila Del Duca, and John Workman. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow on iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comics-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back with our reviews of books for the week. So uh, we spent a lot of time talking about those three news items. So let's try and be brisk here, boys, with our uh, <laughs> with our reviews here. First up is All-Star Batman number 11, written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Raphael Albuquerque. We are getting more Alfred-centric storytelling. Uh, indictments. We are getting uh, also a... Uh, <laughs> I really forgot how much I was enjoying from last issue. Everybody's thinking that Bruce Wayne is hush. <laughs> we got a little bit more of that. Um Greg, is this a book that you were reading with regularity before this month? Uh, it's not. Um, and there were a lot of these books that I either read the first issue, the first couple issues, and I've fallen off with just because I've been really busy. So in reading books for this week, uh, I uh, ended up sort of not having time to really go back and catch up. Uh, right. But I sort of sort of turned into that and said, okay, look, I'm coming in fresh. Let, let's use that sort of as an advantage. Um so for in terms of like all-star Batman, um, you know, this is part two of, you know, whatever storyline this is, uh, going on. Um, the individual issue I thought was pretty good. I mean, craft wise, you know, Snyder and, and Albuquerque, you know, can certainly execute pretty well. I was intrigued. Um, I thought the designs, uh, were, uh, were pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I would, sort of go back it didn't blow me away um but uh yeah it's not bad Vince, what do you think of this issue yeah it um i i certainly like albuquerque's art and the the moments with bruce um that you mentioned brian i like um actually you know the big hubbub about this arc is that it's about um you know alfred's uh time with what is it m6 m6 m5 mi5 mi5 um i'm an idiot sorry um (laughs) but uh (laughs) but um but the more interesting story i think is what's going on with batman oddly or bruce oddly enough and 
kind of what I said last month was I I don't know if I really needed a Alfred like I don't really need Alfred Origins, you know. Um, so I don't I don't know how much it's just it's just not that part hasn't been grabbing. So I swear I thought I read the book, um, and maybe I maybe I didn't read it quite as closely as I should have because I need to ask a question. Um, so those flashbacks and stuff was that Alfred or was that supposed to be Alfred's kid? Oh, that's Alfred. So did Alfred's father work with the Waynes before yes. Alfred went over? Yes. Ah, that's an important point. <laughs> okay. Uh, I swear to God, like I read, I read the comic, but I must have. I don't know if it's because you know this is part two, so like they set that up in part one, and then I, you know, blew over the one little caption that sort of set that up in the beginning. And so when I heard, you know, because you have those scenes where you're cutting back and forth and back and forth between, like, um, uh, you know, I guess now Alfred, uh, in you know in England, and then to the Waynes, sort of like when I was. You know, the younger the younger man was saying, you know, when I was, uh, you know, growing up, my father thought it was more important to go spend time with this American family and wind their clock and this. And he's still winding the clock. And that I thought this was all Alfred's like son. And that's really interesting, actually. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is this is kind of cool. And then now you're saying that was actually Alfred, which is still like I know they wanted to have. I mean, I know Alfred isn't just a butler like he. You know, in, I guess, you know, the last couple of continuity revisions, he's had, you know, SAS training or MI5, you know, some sort of like military, you know, training, which I think is cool. Uh, but I, I apparently thought it was Alfred's kid. And so it was like, because <laughs> you had the duality between like Alfred's son and Bruce Wayne, you know, because Alfred is obviously older than Bruce. So his kid would be like, you know, the same age. So I thought it was Alfred's kid in the whatever the night suit that's, you know, yeah. doing the thing. Okay. Uh, some of these books I apparently read closer than <laughs> a little closer to read than others. So no, I, I, I totally understand the, uh, the confusion there. I, yeah. I definitely do. Um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, this is, uh, this feels the least like a Scott Snyder, that book that any of the all-star arcs has so far. And that, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. I think Snyder is very, very good at what he does, but I think he tends to go, he tends to stay in his lane sometimes a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And so this feels a little bit different than that. So that's that's a really nice thing. Um, but I also feel like some of this stuff is a little bit outside of his comfort zone in a bad way as well. It, it's, it's an okay book, and... Uh, we could always do more with more Raphael Albuquerque artwork. That's yeah. not a thing we we are wherever uh, you know we ever should be low on. We should we should celebrate that whenever we get a chance to. You know you know what would redeem this book for me? What's that? Is if they show Alfred's time in the village with tangerines the size or <laughs> rubies the size of tangerines or whatever <laughs> whatever michael kane says he screwed up the quote but <laughs> you know what uh, I'm about. i do i do <laughs> uh, oh okay okay <laughs> i first i thought you were going for uh some sort of ringo reference there like uh yeah i thought it was like the prisoners of marvelous guys like, uh, yeah. all right 
Uh, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's go over to. Uh, I'm just gonna dig a hole and bury the lead here, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite book of the week, Aquaman number twenty-five. Mine is what? Well, my favorite Rebirth book of the week. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, written by Dan Abnett. You guys got to help me try and pronounce. Uh, Stepan Sedjic, I think. Okay, Sedjic. Uh, yeah. I thought this was a really, really good issue of Aquaman. Uh, now, part of that is because I've been reading it all along, and so I kind of know what the character has been up to. So, Greg, I'm really interested to hear what you say about this. Is were you reading Aquaman weekly? No, weekly? but I was listening to you guys talk about it. Um, okay, so what did so, you think going into this issue? Yeah, so it's interesting. So this week we have a couple of issue 25s that have been uh-huh. oversized, and I think almost all of them are the beginning of new arcs. Right, like this one is, and the Batman one is, and I think the Superman Superman, Superman is an arc, arc. but yeah, but definitely this one is part one of an ongoing arc. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a perfect jumping on point if there's going to be one, right? Like this is primed to do it. Um, I really liked this issue. This was not my favorite issue of the week, um, but that said, it was really, really good. Uh, the art was. <sighs> kind of amazingly better than I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> it was really, really strong. The lettering was good. Like, I liked the the um, the location lettering. How you had, like, the regular captions, but every time they went to a location, it was like a, it was like a separate font, and it wasn't in a caption box. Like, it was just sort of floating there. Like, yeah. it gets really scripty. And I know that seems like a really small bit, but it just sort of... It really... T- it really tied into the type of feel and art that that uh, Cedric was going for, you know. So it's those. I feel like it's, and I'll get to admit in a second. But I feel like when those sort of things are all working in concert, that makes a good book great. You know, those are the type of things that all the the strong books need to do. You know, they don't all, and the thing is, they don't all have to do it in the same way. They just have to do it in a way that fits whatever the story is that they're going for. And I feel like in this, you know, if this is sort of the first time that this creative team has come together, because this is Cedric's first issue, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, that in, in terms of putting your best foot forward, that was a really good foot or fin or whatever. Uh, <laughs> God, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but, but, you know, like, like in terms of, of presentation of this world uh, and everything, that was, I feel like it was stronger than it had a right to be, you know? Um, so, so two thumbs up for that. Uh, Abnet, this plays to all of Abnet's strength. Like the world building, the, the you know, parallel Political and, intrigue. Yeah, political intrigue and different cultures and, and using different cultures to, you know, comment, you know, on what's going on without him really hitting you over the head with it. Uh, this is stuff that I see when he writes, you know, the gray area for, for 2000 AD. I see it in his other work, and I am so glad that he's able that DC is the DC has put him on a character where he can do that and are letting him do that in a way that I don't feel like they're letting Rob Williams do what he's what Agreed. you have you have got to you've got to believe me that he is a better writer than you guys see. Oh, Fine. his Martian Manhunter was one of my favorite books of the last four or five years. Like, yeah. you know, I know he's Mr. Biscuits, Mr. Biscuits, come on, Mr. Biscuits, yeah. Mr. Biscuits, <laughs> awesome. Um, 
but so seeing you know abnet do all this great stuff on this on this book like i want to follow this book now i really want to i really want to follow it um and yeah it was really it was really really good Vince, Vince. what about you yeah i can't say enough nice things about this book i'm glad greg pointed out all the um sort of visual and lettering trappings because he's right those are the things that make a book feel like this book had a premium feel to it and it wasn't just the uh it wasn't just the the page count you know it was the the stellar art i mean this is art that's i'm i swear i've read a book with art by sedgic before but i it didn't bowl me over like this did i don't know what was going on here but um, he, he brought it and, um, and it was consistent all the way through and it felt important. It was an entirely new, I love the way that it was, you know, something of a time jump where suddenly Aquaman, you know, everyone thinks Aquaman is dead and, uh, you know, he's almost mythological at this point mm-hmm. because no one's seen him apparently. And uh, that was a little bit, you know. Abnett's run, we, we've commented from week to week how much it feels like one connected plot rather than a bunch of arcs. Mm-hmm. Well, now this is clearly this is clearly a jumping on point or, or an entirely new status quo for the character. But if informed by everything that came before, the impact is that much greater. Like all of a sudden I feel like I'm reading an entirely different book, mm-hmm. but it's because of what happened you know, two weeks ago in this book, you know, and it's what a way to do. I mean, (laughs) I just can't say enough about how DC (laughs) took, took a really good book and made it a great one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So uh, a little uh, continuity question. Um, Have Volko and Dolphin shown up before in Rebirth or New 52? Yes. Yes. They were in they were in the earlier parts of this story. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but they were in that very last issue, and weren't they kind of had? Uh, who was the one that was in pris- imprisoned? Uh, I don't think that was Volko. No, no, no. Um, so who was it? Anyway, yes, Volko's been around. Yes, and Volko's going to be in the cinematic universe, too, so it's not a surprise to see him pop up here. Uh, I only mention that because, like I said, I haven't been reading, you know, this particular run, but the last run of Aquaman that I liked and I thought worked uh, was, (laughs) surprise, the Peter David run. Um, Although the Busick stuff is actually pretty good. Uh, and I don't want to sort of bitch over that, but, but really, you know, Peter David is like, look, he is a sea King. You don't have to like stretch too hard to make him interesting. He is like interesting. Um, and part of that book was you had, you know, the trappings of Atlantis. So you had Volko and you had dolphin and you had Tempest and stuff. So, uh, you know, coming back to the book after, you know, a big hiatus, I saw not only the, not only the, you know, exceptional art, not only, you know, Abnett, weaving all of these different things together, I saw character touch points um, that I sort of recognized and that helped me sort of get back into it. And that being like Volko and, and Dolphin and uh, and stuff. So really this did, I think everything this issue needed to do to get me uh, or to get readers to, uh, to, to jump on. 
uh, at this point. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this this felt like like when I was a kid, I remember going to local comic shops and just seeing a book on the shelf that just looked so different than everything else. Mm-hmm. And that when it was a book that looked different but featured a character I loved, I always would want to pick it up because I was like, how are they going to do this differently? And if you looked at the cover of Aquaman 24 and the cover of Aquaman 25, yeah. it looks like two totally different books, yet – like Vince said, it built off what happened in the past so well that when you're reading it, it feels new, but it doesn't feel disconnected. Yeah. And I'm so thankful that it uh, that it feels this way. I'm really enjoying this book. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's let's keep it up, Dan. Dan Abnett. Okay. Let's go for it. Uh, that brings us to Batman number 25, <laughs> The War of Jokes and Riddles, part one. Um, uh, Tom King and Michael Janine. Janine, Janine, we never know how to say that name, unfortunately. Um, and let me just say, I think it is so fucking funny that the cover of the book literally has a quote from Batman Forever on it. <laughs> That riddle is what Jim Carrey says in the trailer of Batman Forever. Oh, no. Are you serious? I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am totally serious, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that tells you everything you need to know. About uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hang on. Oh, is this the who's afraid of the... Oh, yeah, riddle me that who's afraid who's of the big afraid black of the big black bat? You're like, oh, shit. Let's see. Yeah, um, I don't want to go first on this. What did you guys think? All right, let me go first on this. Uh, this is shit. Uh, <laughs> there's just, I, I feel like everything about King's Run is set up like a, every page turn. You're supposed to be like, "Oh my God, whoa!" <laughs> And like he, he wants everything to be this giant important reveal, and none of it works for me. None of it works for me. I don't think what he's doing is clever here. I don't think what he's doing is particularly good here. You know, I, at first I was like, oh, one of my favorite times with the Riddler is when the Riddler is kind of a morally ambiguous character, when he is, you know. When he's he's clearly not a good dude, but he's not a terrible dude, and then he just like you know straight up murders a cop, and mm-hmm. so okay, well there goes there goes that fun bit, and uh, the whole bit where like he and the Joker are talking like essentially like nose to nose about this was just so overdone, and uh, everything about this book is overdone. Vince, always, always. Oh, that? yeah, it's um. By the way, I think I say yeah whenever you go to me. I gotta, I gotta work on not doing that. As, um, that's a very Midwest thing. Um, anyway, uh, it, 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 it <laughs> yeah, it, this, this, the way that Tom King is writing this, it's as if this is supposed to be some massive epic that we won't believe, you know. And to me, it, it feels ridiculous and cartoonish in all the bad ways. Like, like every everything is written with this like in, like palpable menace, 
you know, everything the Riddler says is like, like just laden with with a layer of menace in the writing where you can almost feel like where you're supposed to pause and be like, wow, this is fucked up, you know? And like, <laughs> like same with the Joker. This is the most edgelord take on the Joker that I've ever <laughs> read. And mm. that like, like I'm, I'm reminded of the, the Neil Gaiman uh, scene in his like two issue detective story. I don't remember the name of it. Um, but it was like a, it was like a funeral for Batman, right? Wasn't it after whatever Batman? happened to the Cape Crusader? Yeah, there you go. Yep. And um, there's a scene where the Joker pulls up, and the driver or something, or the valet, is worried that he's going to kill him. And the valet, or you know, the valet is like, "Don't, please, don't kill me," you know, whatever. I, it's really well written because it's Neil Gaiman. But um, <laughs> but the Joker, the Joker goes, "Why would I kill you?" what would possibly be funny about killing you, you know, implying that the Joker is supposed to be funny, you know, and I can handle like a more serious take on the Joker. And that's what we're going to get from now on because the Joker doesn't really tell jokes anymore or have water squirting flowers or whatever. And I can come to grips with that, but this he doesn't joke, have to, he doesn't have to murder stand-up comedians for no reason. This Joker. Yes. It's so over the top. Stand up comedian does a set for the Joker. He shoots him. The next one has to clean the dude off the stage. It's so over the top and grim. And just he's walking around just shooting people in the head and like hoping it's going to be funny to him, I guess, is what, you know, he keeps saying, like, nope, that wasn't funny either. You know, he's basically depressed Joker, but mm -hmm. instead of killing himself, he's killing everybody else. <laughs> and it's not. It's so grim, dark, and and trying to be edgy, and just it's in in one issue's time, it's probably one of the worst takes on the Joker I've ever read. <laughs> and and then just I I can't stand the way that he's writing this with like the final scene with Bruce and Selena in bed, the dialogue. It's just so like. It's not natural at all. It's so scripted, but it's like movie script, bad movie script. You know, it's just like, I, I tell you about the thing I had to do during the war of jokes and, you know, it's like, right. come on. The, but the whole book is like that. Like, it'd be different if if those moments were saved for, for certain impactful scenes or whatever. Literally 25 issues of this book has been have been written like that all the way through, and I it's 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 mind numbing to read at this point. Greg, let's see you. Uh, one, I'm glad David Finch was not on this issue. <laughs> yes, um, and I feel bad saying that because every time I think of Finch. Uh, I think of like the convention photo of him where he's got this like big smile and he seems like a really nice guy. He's he might be the nicest artist. He probably is like the nicest guy. Yeah. Uh and I feel bad about not liking his stuff, but I clearly I, I have issues uh, uh you know with it. So artistically, uh there's more going on uh with this and so I was sort of thankful for that. Um in terms of just the Joker, uh so are there like officially three jokers now? 
I believe so, yes. We, okay. don't, we don't know. But we don't know. We, we, don't we know. joke about that so all the time. So what I was thinking is I'm reading this, and I'm like, okay, so this is obviously in the past, so what's the deal with the Joker? And I thought maybe this was like, I was like, okay, so are there three Jokers? Is this like the Joker, like, right after he got out of the vat? So he's trying to, like, rediscover comedy because he's, like, all, you know, like, fucked up? Like, is that one of, was that a Joker option? You know? That's why he's, like, trying to... But then I was like, no, he got out of the vet and then started laughing. So that obviously wasn't it. But I was trying to sort of reconcile, like, what the hell is, is up, you know, like, where the Joker's sort of coming from. Um, I did enjoy the part, or, or the, the take on the Riddler, um, you know, when he's sort of, like you said, skirting the line between, you know, criminal and, like, he's eccentric and a criminal, but he's not, like, a murdering criminal. So he's sort of helping the police and, you know, solving riddles and you know, like, like consulting detective, like the Paul Dini, you know, yeah, take exactly. on the Riddler. Like I thought that was a really good idea. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. So they're doing that. And then, well, they're not really doing that. And how can he straight up like shank a detective in an interrogation room and apparently walk out and like, <laughs> yeah. not like what the fuck? Yeah. So this felt like 16 pages worth of story. If we're being honest over like 30 some pages. <laughs> so like even the, even that opening scene of like, you know, the Joker in a, uh, you know, the Joker in a uh, theater auditioning comedians, shooting them, and you see the pile of bodies and everything. I was like, that's great. That's like a page. Why is that? Why do you take three pages to have that gag? And that felt like the entire issue was, you know, every scene could have been, felt like it should have been about at least half, if not a third of the length of it. And even on that last page where it's like Bruce is saying, you know, Bruce is laying sort of post, uh, you know, yeah, post-coital with, you know, Selena, and it's it's like he's got three, essentially two to three panels worth of dialogue that he says over eight or nine, and you're like, <laughs> that feels like it's kind of, you know, that's kind of the whole book. You know, yeah. when you see other issues that can be so concise or so have that much space and fill it with so much different information. Like, imagine if Dan Abnett had this much space to be able. Well, I guess we can. He did an incredibly awesome issue of fucking Aquaman, right? And so here, Batman, yeah, not so, not so much. So. An improvement on the art for me, um, but I'm I'm not engaged in the. Uh, I I feel like I, sh I like inherently will probably keep a tab on sort of what happens, but I'm not. Re I wouldn't read it because I actually feel like I want to read the execution of the story, but I am vaguely curious about sort of what actually happens plot wise. So, that's very fair. Um, let's move on to Batwoman number four, okay. written by uh, Marguerite Bennett and James Tynion the fourth, illustrated by Steve Epting. Um, I've actually read a lot of people being very unhappy with this book online lately, and that has not been my experience with it. But I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. Uh, this sort of wraps up the uh, the arm the many arms of death storyline, which had been the first five issues of the book, kind of the rebirth issue, and. Uh, Greg, you didn't start last time, so I'm gonna make you start this time. What did you think of this issue of Batwoman? Um, it was not bad. Uh, I really enjoyed the Rebirth issue. I mean, I thought the Rebirth issue was really, really strong. Uh, and I felt this was—I think I might have read the first issue, but I haven't read sort of any um, any since. I felt like I wanted to go back and catch up. I guess now that I've sort of read the you know read the ending, I do feel like I want to go back. I just felt like the, I guess the overall impression for me was that Steve Emting did really good work in this, but it didn't feel like 
transcendent Epting like it did in sort of Rebirth. And I think part of that might have been that maybe some of the... Because he's doing everything except for the colors. So maybe a bit of the... I don't want to say... It's not wash, but like the, the pencil shading and stuff that he was doing like in his um, Velvet work and might have actually come over a little more in the reverse stuff. It felt like a lot of that got sort of put away in order to probably streamline the process. Cause I always got to do like a monthly book. So the art felt like it was pretty good, but not quite as on point as when Epting is really like has the time, like the velvet sort of time to be able to really shade stuff and give it, you know, a different type of feel. Um, and that is probably unfair because his work here is strong. His storytelling is great. Um, the, uh, and I'm sort of flipping through it as I'm looking at it just to see if I make sure I don't necessarily miss anything. So it's strong work. It didn't feel quite as sort of breakthrough as that, uh, as that rebirth stuff. But, um, Kate feels like the Kate I want to, I want to read, um, and I really, I really do want to go back and sort of, uh, you know, catch up with the with the character. So enjoyed it, didn't didn't love it. Um, yeah. Vince, how about you? Yeah, this this I did it again. This uh, <laughs> this this book is uh this book is squarely on that tier, like just below the very best that DC has to offer right now. You know, it's not. It's not transcendent the way that Superman sometimes can be, you know, but it's squarely on that like. This would have been the best book of the New Fifty Two for many months, but because <laughs> everything else has gotten sure. better, this feels less important. Yeah. 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 Okay. Sure. Um, yeah. And. Uh, yeah. Uh, why don't why. I, I, I guess I'm more interested in why people are not liking this. What, are, what have you been seeing, Ryan? I've, I've been seeing people say how this is a boring story that doesn't that's ignoring like a lot of Kate's history. And I think people just want a Kate and Renee book. Yeah. And this isn't that people are upset. Oh, about. yeah. Was it the shippers? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think so. All right. Um, um I think this is a perfectly good book. I think I think mm-hmm. everything is doing really nice work. I think that Tynan and Bennett are setting up things that will hopefully like I, I love the end of that rebirth issue, that tease of 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 Kate in the colony costume and like, you know, leading leading an army. Like I, I can't wait to see how that all plays out. And there's so much cool stuff that could be happening in this book, and I'm hoping it's gonna start happening soon. And I'm really excited about it. So yeah, so they they know that um, Renee will be back, right? Like yeah, but you know people. <laughs> I know. You know people. Like they explicitly set that up. That yes. Ne- <laughs> never mind. You know what? <laughs> I don't have the energy for this tonight. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is it is getting late. A peek behind the curtain. We need to start recording later tonight. So I, I think we should. Uh, there's a couple of books I know we're going to want to talk about in more depth. So let's just kind of really, really plow through here. Um, anything to say about Green Arrow? Uh, Kate Spencer. Yeah, yes. Kate Spencer. She's back. She's good again. 
<laughs> and uh, Otto Schmidt did nice work. Yeah, uh, I love uh, Otto Schmidt's art. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep an yeah, I'm gonna keep an eye on on Green Arrow because it was a you should it's good. Uh, it was in issue twenty five, and I believe it started off in New York or whatever. So yeah, it it uh, it did what it needed to do. Yeah, cool. Uh, Green Lanterns. Woo, that was yeah. Um, <laughs> I have a. Uh, I read that book and came up with a Green Lantern pitch that I, not necessarily a pitch, but a book I wanted to see, and that was not it. Yeah. Um, no. So yeah, that was in the thumb down column. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Not mu- not much here. I will say this though, uh, Robson Roca, I I don't <laughs> I don't believe that that was actually his art. <laughs> it doesn't look. It doesn't, no, really, not because he's a bad artist, but because it doesn't look anything like, like he was he was one of the artists on the first arc of this book, right? Yeah. His his art didn't look anything like this. This was really, really nice. I wish the story was good, but um, it wasn't. But I thought the art was like, I don't know. It was, it, was, it was much better than we've come to expect, I think. That's interesting. I didn't, I felt like it looked like what Roka usually does. Really? Yeah. Uh, but maybe, maybe that's, maybe I've been, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a different anchor, different it colorist. Could it could yeah. be, yeah. So. Uh, I I realize we we skipped over. Uh, Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye, number nine. Um, uh, Greg, are you reading? Uh, I am. I am behind, but looking over this issue, God damn it, I need to catch up because it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Wild dog, wild oh, dog. Are you fucking kidding me? That's awesome. Uh, and the the head machete. Mm-hmm. thing it's like oh it's mine now and i'm like oh wow that yeah i really need to catch up on that book uh this was the book that when when young animal started everybody i i think both vince and zach thought i was being silly for saying this is my favorite one but the more i read it the more it continues to yeah. be my favorite young animal book yeah like that super superman issue a couple issues ago was really yeah. really good uh yeah. oming is killing it and the occasional profanity uh somehow doesn't feel as as like off the wall as it feels like it should um it, it, it's it's just it's a really good book it's a really really good book vince yeah same it's it's good it's always good <laughs> yeah. uh let's see nightwing number 23 uh I don't know if I got all the way through. I think I stopped reading this uh, and then didn't pick it back up again, not because of quality, but just because of sort of schedule. Um, this is also a very much a part two. Okay. Uh, but it like looks it, good. It, it was pretty reliant on what happened last month. Hmm. Vince? Um, yeah, I think I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to really be that into this arc. Um, I think last time I said, I guess I just don't care about Blockbuster mm-hmm. at all, um, nor his brother, <laughs> um, who's also Blockbuster. Um, <laughs> brother, <laughs> Blockbuster, <laughs> uh, I'm getting loopy. Um, but I thought the Dick and Sean relationship stuff was pretty authentic feeling and handled well and Mm -hmm. i I like seeing that kind of stuff in a in a superhero book um but 
and I I, I love uh, Minkyu Young or Jung's art. Um, I, I, I he's been a great addition to this book. Um, but I just don't. We know got a Magog much. sighting. Magog. 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 I I guess. I yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm not all that interested in this particular plot, even though the the book is still technically good. That's fair. Um, I just realized I, I'm skipping things left and right. We skipped Justice League, which you guys didn't read, but I right. did. So uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, a few weeks ago, I commented on how I don't know why Tom Grummet doesn't get more work anymore, because I think he's a perfectly fine draftsman mm-hmm. and who kind of had his like, moment in the sun and hasn't been back since. And here he is doing this issue of uh, JL. So oh, really? Yeah. Shit, I need to go back and look at that. I like Tom Grimmett. No, I'm sorry. No, he was something else this week. Not that. Uh, or last week. This was um, Tom Derenick. My apologies. Oh. Uh, uh, Grimmett, what did Grimmett just do? Grimmett uh, was on one of the uh, Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no Looney, Looney, Tunes. Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Legion. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, so this was a, uh, a Jessica Cruz-centric issue, and it was fine. It was... Tom DeFalco was filling in for uh, Brian Hitch, and it was fine. It was fine. Was it fine? It was fine. It was. It was nothing special at all. Uh, it's one one of those things that one of those situations where there were one, two, three, four, uh, four inkers though. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. God. I feel um, like I feel like Tom Derenick gets saddled with a lot of inkers when he fills in. Yeah. Is that just a thing that I don't know? Deadline pressure, probably. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Derenick is one of those guys who they turn to when something needs to be turned out quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that brings us to Lobo and the Roadrunner. Oh god. Oh. I, I I wanted to. I thought you guys would appreciate this. If you just showed somebody the <laughs> credits on the bottom of the cover. They'd be like, sweet, Grant Morrison and J.G. Jones. Because <laughs> it just says Morrison Jones. Oh. And this is not no, Morrison Jones. because the book actually came out, Brian, so they wouldn't. <laughs> that is true. Ooh. Ooh. But Bill Morrison and Kelly Jones, you're, uh, you're book bored me. I couldn't, really? I couldn't get through it. What? Yeah. Oh, okay. I love this, Greg. Tell, sell me on it, yeah. man. I fucking love this book. This is my really? favorite book of the. This is my favorite book of the week, and I, and I say that there are other good books, but I fucking love this. I love this issue. I loved both stories. Uh, I loved. Um, well, I mean, so I just talked about Kelly Jones a couple weeks ago on on robots because we did uh, Red Rain. Yeah. Um. So Kelly Jones has been somebody I've loved for years. You know, he is uh, primarily considered a horror artist, but his art has a malleability to it he can go like super grotesque he can go super exaggerated but this issue he pulls it back enough to be within certain bounds like he's not like hey i'm on swamp thing and swamp thing has 16 zillion abs you know (laughs) if you you know like like that body extension sort of body horror type of type of stuff he really sort of dials it in when he needs to, but he's got a cartoonishness and elasticity to be able to handle, you know, like the coyote. And he makes him like a mutated 
coyote, but still kind of there's there's exaggeration where there needs to be, but there's also he ba- he balances a couple of different tones uh, in his art in a way that Bill Morrison handles the tones for the script. And I think I thought the pairing of them was really, really in really, really sharp. Um, really, neither of you guys like this issue. I have never been a Kelly Jones fan. Oh, well, okay, that'll do it. Yeah. Um, I I didn't so much mind the art. I just found the story really, really dumb. uh, So, bit of a spoiler, but did you guys enjoy this or the Wonder Woman issue more? The Wonder Woman, but it wasn't, that wasn't saying much. It wasn't saying much? Okay. I think Um, I probably enjoyed this one a little bit more. Okay. Um, So, I... I mean, I was I, well. Let me back up here, Greg. Did you okay. read last week's uh, no. one? Okay. Oh wait. Oh, I, I did read the Martian Manhunter one or the Martian okay. Martian Manhunter one. To me, both of those were head and shoulders above this. See, I thought Morrison handled it. it I I thought Morrison handled this. I thought Morrison handled the balancing of using the Looney Tune stuff and putting it into, uh, you know, sort of the DCU and the DCU going over into into the Looney Tune stuff. I thought he handled it about as well as you could, and I think because more and the interesting thing about Morrison is he's done a ton of work for Bongo, which is of course the Simpsons comics, right? So I feel like his th- this felt almost like a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror issue where like you know the simpsons can still be funny but it will incorporate other stuff into it and make it feel organic in sort of the simpsons universe you know and i feel like morrison has um he has experience doing that and i felt like that was him taking those chops and going into the dcu and saying oh you have lobo who will you know is a contract killer or you know does contract stuff and you would have the wily coyote just say you know look i want to get him to take out the roadrunner because i've been doing it for decades and i'm tired of this shit and so like i felt like it it serviced the, the story serviced every beat that i wanted it to have for putting these two putting these two uh high concepts sort of together and I, I thought there were little gags that worked. I thought there were big gags that worked. I thought the last, you know, sort of backup that kind of flipped everything and had Lobo in the Looney Tunes universe. I thought that was funny. I, that I, was I, my favorite part. I just, I fucking love this. I love this issue. This this made the whole crossover, not even necessarily the crossover, this made the whole thing worth it. If they had just done this and like nothing else, I would have been like, that's awesome. <laughs> Good so, for you, man. I... I really and I loved some other books this week, but this I read this and I was like, actually, this was the first book I read for the week. And it was all kind of down. <laughs> it's all sort of kind of downhill from here. Uh, so yeah, I, I fucking love this one. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we, I'm glad we finally have a dis, uh, difference of opinion on this show because usually the <laughs> DC three is like yeah. of one mind. Three dudes, three dudes kissing all the time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oh boy! Sorry. Uh, well, that brings us to uh, Superman number twenty-five, mm. written by Tomasi and Gleason, illustrated by Gleason and Monkey. Uh, this is the end of the Manchester Black arc, uh, an arc that I think I can speak for myself. Uh, I was not a huge fan of. 
Mm-hmm. It, it was, it's been good, but it's been my, probably my least favorite arc of the book so far. Uh, Vince, what did you think of this issue? See, and I, I, I really dug it, but again, it's that um, it's kind of the thing that I said about uh, the Doug Monkey issues of this book. They have a different feel than the than the um, Gleason issues. And now I know Gleason did art on like half of this issue, so like I understand that. But like as a whole, the Monkey issues have been a lot more like action heavy sort of like heavy metal Superman, whereas the Gleason ones are the ones where they kind of stretch their sort of familial, greater narrative storytelling type stuff. And I dug it on that level. Like I dug them fighting with the Frankenstein family again and, and like the, the dark, dark John stuff and the future Damien, future John moment. And, um, I love the way that this escalated. You know, I wish, I wish action heavy stories. It's, it's kind of, it's a credit to Tomasi and Gleason co-writing this, that they were able to take something that felt like a very small story at the beginning and escalate it to this like massive battle that, uh, that was going on. And, um, and I just, I just dug it on that level. And then ending up with, uh, Manchester Black trapped in a cow was <laughs> a really nice, really nice button on the whole thing. Somebody mentioned it's going to be super cow versus bat cow soon. Oh <laughs> hell yeah! Baby. If the uh, if the cow doesn't get uh, turned into hamburgers, and then, <laughs> that is true. You know, give six or seven different people like weird powers. <laughs> you guys read Skull Kill Crew, right? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh, yep. Yeah. yeah. It, yep, it, it wouldn't uh, be the uh, the first time that um, uh, Tomasi's cribbed from Morrison either. Yeah, well, they're buddies, to... you know. Yeah. It's, 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 oh, yeah. It's a playful sort of back and forth. Um, yeah. yeah, I I dug, uh, you know, the issue. Now, I've read some of the Superman stuff before this, so it wasn't a complete sort of surprise to me. I hadn't read anything in this arc, but um, just, you know, Gleason and Tomasi and Monkey fuck those guys are those guys are good they are yeah they are they're seamless and i love them writing essentially like world's finest like we essentially it feels like we have three or four different world's finest books going on you know like between this and super sons and and so just seeing like uh you know jonathan and and damien then their parents always sort of like show up so it feels i i love that dynamic and I love Tomasi being involved in all of these, you know, sort of books. And, and it was, uh, yeah, it was just good. It was really good. Yeah. Like I said, I just, for some reason, this arc wasn't my favorite one. But that's not to say it was bad. It's just, you know, I've enjoyed, I think I enjoyed the more familial stuff uh, more than the, the quote, heavy metal stuff to, to, uh, to quote my friend Vince there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that does, speaking of World's Finest, brings us to Super Sons number five, written by uh, Tomasi with art. Who did the art this week? It was some. I really enjoyed the art, but it wasn't. It wasn't uh, Jimenez. Allison it, Borges. Yes, uh, I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. This was a great issue. In what's been a great series. Yeah, I am. Sh- 
I shouldn't say I'm shocked anymore, but every time I read Damien and every time I read Jonathan and every time I read them together, I'm still sort of surprised that it works as well as it does. <laughs> yeah. Not th- not that it shouldn't work, it's that DC's allowing it to be DC's allowing it to be that good. Because these are kids. Like, you know, it's like seeing kids in movies. The kid is usually like the annoying person, you know? And these I'm like, I I can I can read this book all day. You know? Uh and the art I thought um so Jimenez is, you know, the regular artist and he's like Almost, too, I don't want to say too good to be working on the book, but he is really, really <laughs> fucking good. Like, if they waited, because this book didn't, it was a Rebirth book that didn't launch with the Rebirth stuff. Like, they waited and launched it later. If they were waiting to make sure he could be on the book on a regular schedule, it it was absolutely, yes, I had two thumbs up to that decision because he is, he is fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, Borges comes in and does really, really good work in this issue. Um in a way that sort of, you know, it fits the tone that, that Jimenez has put in. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in it. I liked, uh, this is the way that you do fill-ins if you're not going to do them as like a separate story, you know? Uh, so the way this, the way this book was sort of put together, I thought was really good. Uh, I love Tomasi's voice that he gives these characters. Um, yeah, I'm I'm reading a book about Kid Superman and Kid Batman, and I'm liking it. Like, what the fuck? How the fuck did that happen? But it's happening. Like, it it's it's a thing now. Like, it is a thing. So, I guess I'm going to be following this book more closely now too. So, Vince, Vince, what'd you think? Yeah, just a this book just is a delight. Anytime, anytime you read it, and nothing even really has to happen in it. I mean, if you think about if you think about the plot of this issue it's just more like uh it's kind of damien and john scrapping back and forth but at the same time there's like a brotherly like you know when the when the parents come in oh quick hide in uh hide in the dinosaur's butt you know and like <laughs> it's just it's just so playful and delightful um no matter what's going on in it so um it's one of those books that I'm always I'm looking forward to read on whatever week it comes out, and I don't care what is going on in it. I just want to spend time with these characters as a duo. Um, it's 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 brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Superman is married with a kid. Batman <laughs> has a kid. Like that shouldn't work. If you'd have said this like five years ago or ten years ago, people would have been like, "That is the stupidest idea." Because kids and marriage don't work in comics. And Tomasi's yeah. like, oh yeah? Well, let me show you how it's done. And you're like, fuck. He fucking did I don't know if you listened to the show a couple couple weeks ago, Greg, but we kind of joked that uh, when when Bruce proposed to Selena, yeah. we said like that was Didio going, all right, you wanted your heroes married? They're all going to be married. Yeah. <laughs> Even Batman. Uh, yeah... Uh, if Tomas is writing it, you know what? I'm I'll be okay with it, but he's yeah. not. So, uh, we'll see. As long as it doesn't screw up Super Sons, you know, yeah. they can do whatever they want in Batman. I can ignore that. It's fine. <laughs> so. Absolutely. All right. Uh, what's next? I'm, I'm cool with that. Uh, next is the wild storm number five. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, this was Vince's favorite book of the week. Molto bene. 
<laughs> it, it's uh, yeah. This was this was a masterclass in comic booking. I think from beginning to end. I can't believe how good this issue was. Um, do you want me to just get into it or? Sure, buddy. Um, so, first of all, Michael Cray, right? Uh, kind of this contract guy working for, um, what's his name? Uh, Miles Craven, right? Mm-hmm. This is how you get me invested in a character, not just in one issue, but in like two pages. You know, they they start out with with him kind of observing um, this new tech that has escaped, and uh, and he's he sits there and he's looking at this this image, uh, and he's in like wonderment, you know. And then at the end of the issue, they have this two-page sequence where it shows his life story, essentially, from his point of view. And you see him in every panel, like, reaching out for something or, in one case, cutting off a guy's head, which was disturbing. But, like, you know, you see him reaching out to whatever in the world is is before him. And it's, it's in two pages you figure out how much this guy loves life and wants to see the world and had all these dreams and aspirations. And now he's dying of a brain tumor, like sometime very soon. And, uh, and like the, the art John Davis, John Davis hunts approach to that scene. And the way that Ellis, the way that Ellis at times just kind of lets him run away with things it's just so like you immediately care about this guy and so often like the care is not put into these types of characters you know you're supposed to just feel for them because they're dying right but this goes beyond that and um just the atmosphere that you know then kind of the other part of this issue was uh zealot dropping down and investigating um, sort of this the, the grisly scene where we saw the Wildcats have their like fight a couple issues ago I think um, and then you you get uh, Zealot having a conversation with a daemon and like the, that's that's John Davis Hunt's art like running away with it too like the way that he draws this demon coming from coming up from behind zealot like out of the darkness it's just this like hulking something about the way that he drew that was just added another layer of like weird sci-fi horror you know john carpenter-esque or something just everything about this issue just oozed with like quality and and ellis is at like the top of his game as far as i'm concerned I love this comic. I love it. I can't say more about it. It's. What did you think, Greg? Um, I. I echo a lot of what Vince said. Um, I mean, I think it's great that Ellis is, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's great that Ellis is basically getting a chance to go back and do like a second draft of Wildstorm. 
where he's taking all of these things that were there from the beginning that Jim Lee and Brandon Choi and all of the, you know, the homage Wildstorm guys at the beginning were like, oh, this would be really cool if we put this in. And oh, this would be really cool if we put that in. And they were, no pun intended, image. Like there was all, it was all style, no substance. And the substance that they put in at the time was basically picked from movies and stuff at the time. And it was, it was all sort of kind of hollow. And Ellis, when he came in, first back in like 96 97 when he really started working for them was like taking those bits and pieces and sort of making something out of them and now he gets a chance to go back and basically do like a page one reboot of all of this stuff and so he takes all of these having seen like years and years and years of pieces that were sort of on the of in the pot or on the chessboard he's basically putting them into an order that makes sense from from page one uh so you know, he makes you care about Michael Cray or Deathblow, you know, um, he makes you care about Zealot. He makes you care about, you know, all of these, you know, all of these different, all these different things. And that's great. He, you know, is paired up with John Davis Hunt, who is almost like categorically the opposite of Flash over Substance. He is Substance over Flash. And I don't mean that as a I don't mean that as a criticism, um, but he is, it is very much, it is, it is a very grounded execution of all of this stuff. Um, I like his art. I think it's really good in a lot of places. If I'm being absolutely honest, there are a couple of things where some of his faces don't necessarily work quite as well as they should. Um, and I think faces are really, really, for me, might be where an artist can sort of go a little bit off track with me. Like being able to draw a face is like David Finch. David Finch cannot draw. He can draw one face and he draws it on everybody. And I think the really good artists can, can, I don't mean to lay boil it down like this, but, but can show sort of more than one thing going on, you know, facially, be it like eyes that are actually alive as opposed to having this sort of dead stare, or that's that's kind of like one of the bellwethers of whether an artist is really on point with me or not, is how lifelike can they make an actual, you know, an actual face or an expression or whatever. Um, a lot of the stuff that Hunt does is really good. His design work is great. The storytelling and stuff is super clear, uh, like it needs to be. If I had to nitpick, some of the faces seem a, could use a little more life. Um... And that would probably really sort of put it uh, over over the top uh, for me, but that's probably an asshole sort of nitpick um, that I'm apologizing for it coming out. It's what we as, do. It, yeah, but like it's it's super strong work. I think he's he's doing everything he needs to do. Uh, if he had to have something on the something you need to work on, I was like maybe you know. And it's not even every face. It's just like usually once or twice an issue. I'm like, ew, that face is a little. It, it's a little lifeless, you know, like it doesn't quite fit in with everything else that you're, that you're, uh, sort of doing. Um, but in terms of accomplishing what he needs to accomplish, uh, bang on. Yeah. Nice. I, I can't possibly go into more depth than you guys went into. This is a very good book. And, uh, just the fact that this week DC had good books with young animal Wildstorm, Rebirth, and according to Greg, uh, Looney Tunes crossovers shows you just how yeah. how diverse their line is right now. And uh, finally, Wonder Woman, Tasmanian Devil, 
uh, <laughs> written by Tony Bedard, because of course it was uh, illustrated by Barry Kitson. Uh, this was okay. This wasn't interesting to me. Uh, Taz wasn't the crazy goofball I thought he would be, which was both appreciated and uh, annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciated. I was never a big Taz guy. Oh, I, man. <laughs> uh, so just really quick, for me on this, I felt like one of the things that the Lobo Roadrunner thing did was Lobo has a shtick and Roadrunner has a shtick, or the you know the Coyote and Roadrunner has, has a shtick, and that book really sort of linked them up in a way that they complemented each other and played off each other. I didn't feel like Tasmanian Devil really had a high concept or a shtick, so I didn't feel like there was really a hook for this issue to sort of there wasn't really a good starting place for this issue to to go on, so it's like they tried to manufacture one, and I didn't necessarily think that Bedard did a great job in sort of giving me one that supported the fact that it was like, you know, 30 pages or something. So, um, and I like Kitson. I like Kitson's art. Uh, here it felt uh, a, a little stiff and a little... And he doesn't have a whole lot of elasticity to his art, but here it felt particularly stiff in places. So kind of an off week for, for them, I guess. Vince? You remember when Taz was like on leather jackets and stuff? Yes. He was like yeah. a cool like biker avatar. Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um I I posted a like a thirty second clip of Taz to Twitter last week when I read this and uh, it's just of him like him busting in on Bugs Bunny and making like his like growling farting noises and I have to admit that I it had been a while since I'd laughed that hard so if there was any other evidence that I'm a total mark for the Looney Tunes um, that's that's all you need to hear Um, but this issue was was not great uh, because not only because it didn't really feel like Taz but also because it felt like a really rote wonder woman story as well um to the point like it kind of felt like a D adventure in fact like like they go into this labyrinth and there's skeletons there you know and it's, it felt like it was tony bedard's like leftover D campaign that <laughs> never but um but yeah like taz wasn't cartoony or playful enough and i i wish they would have leaned more we kind of had this fear when they came out with the covers that they were going to sort of like soup these cartoon characters up to be like more realistic or more edgy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what happened here. Um, And also like, I I know that this isn't, these Looney Tunes stories are not like canon or anything, Mm -hmm. but it was weird that Diana was returning to Themyscira after an entire after run everything run. has been about how she can never do that again yeah, yeah an entire rucker run was about how she can't do you know yeah. like again i know it's not canon but it's just weird to have that happen coming off the back of that yeah. It, whoops but, yeah whoops <laughs> and then uh wonder woman also admitted that she's a furry so i don't know if you caught that but yeah <laughs> weird she's, she's furry <laughs> and i i thought the um if if the if the first half of the issue was okay or like the upfront story was okay or passable, that backup was just dreadful. <laughs> um, 
the backup with like the sing, like the oh the song. Uh, oh Jesus story, Christ! Yeah. yeah, the story, <laughs> the story of the Battle of Troy or something, and like just really horribly unfunny. Elmer Fudd is Donald Trump because of course he is, and um, <laughs> and the, actually the one good joke in that entire thing was about how at the very end they said that the comic failed the Bechdel test. Yeah. Which is true. <laughs> so it was like, it's, it's a good joke, but it meant you wrote a problematic comic. Right. <laughs> but Yeah, um, and you yeah. rhymed Bechdel with rectal? Yeah, <laughs> not not a good look. <laughs> not a good look at all. So, oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, folks, that does it for another installment of the DC3 cast. Thank you, Greg, for sitting in. Oh, uh, no. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, Zach getting back. And Yeah, we have and... one more week after this without Zach. And uh, if you guys are looking for more Brian and Vince goodness, we are going to be guest hosting the Manga Club podcast along uh-huh. with Emily Myers because Walter is preparing for the bar and Zach is in, uh, in Japan. So we are going to be talking about – and this will be out – when you hear this just a couple days later, you can go to multiversitycomics.com and you can hear us talk about the Jiro Kawada Bat Manga Volume 1. Cool. Yeah, and, uh, Walter's studying like a huge nerd. Exactly. <sighs> nerd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Greg's show, Robots from Tomorrow, is on twice weekly, Mondays and Thursdays on Multiversity. And... Uh, you hear a commercial for it just about every week, so you should be checking it out by now. But if not, this would be a great time to check it out. Especially because Greg just interviewed Greg Rucka not long ago. That will be a great entry point for someone who hasn't listened to Robots yet. Yeah. Uh, or you could listen to that and then listen for one that you know both Mike and I uh, That's true, yes. Uh, no, the, the Rucka interview was really, 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 really fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, Mike and I do, uh, you know, it, it's fun. It, it's a fun show. I think people should listen. And uh, if you want, <laughs> I think so too. And, uh, I'm horrible at get... like promoting. <laughs> and if you want to get in touch with any of us, we're all on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs an App. I'm at VJ underscore O S T R O W S K I. I'm at Greg Matasevich, G R E G M A T I A S E V as in Vince, I C H. I wish there was a B in your name, so you could have said B is for Brian, but that's all right. I feel very, very special. Yeah, I usually <laughs> say Victor, uh, but I thought for this, uh, I'll, I'll switch it up and say Vince. So. Well, my middle name is Vincent, so I'm I'm cool with that, too. And yeah. uh, until next time, Greg, thank you again. And folks, we'll be back in a week. Uh, enjoy. Enjoy.